All right, thanks, James. It's good to see all you guys. Um, hope you had a good Christmas. If you could open your Bibles to the book of First Peter, First Peter. Uh, if you're new or visiting, uh, we want to welcome you, as we always do. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I've been kind of teasing that we're going to do this this new series that uh, at least I'm excited about. I'm, I might be the only one, uh, but it's not First Peter. Okay, we're going to be doing something a little bit different, um, partially because it's the last Sunday of 2020. And uh, personally, when I think about it, it's kind of crazy that it's almost 2021. I remember uh, this time about a year ago, all these pastors were super excited because it was going to be 2020, and they all had like these puns lined up about like 2020 vision and seeing Jesus clearly and uh, perfection, you know, kind of these weird things that pastors get into. And I remember I was going to do that, but then I saw literally everyone doing it, and I was like, I'm not going to be mainstream like that. Okay, I want to be different. So I think I just called the message last year, vision message, or something like really generic and lame, um, but I didn't want to be that way. But now that, you know, you can actually go back and look at all of these 2020 vision messages and such, and people, all these churches, they laid out like all this stuff that they were going to do, all these plans. But if there's one thing about 2020... There's one thing that God taught us this past year. It's the age-old lesson of Proverbs 16:9. The heart of man's the heart of man, excuse me, plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We can lay out all these plans, but God might have a different plan. And this is why we're in 1 Peter. I said a few weeks ago, uh, again, we're going to be starting this this new expository series through a book of the Bible, uh, and it's going to be the second biggest one we've ever done, okay? So we did Matthew, and that took two and a half years. Now, understand our church is less than five years old, so more than half of our church's life was in Matthew because uh, we're crazy like that over here. Um, and this next one is going to take us about two years. And I'll give you a hint, it's in the Old Testament because we're even crazier than you thought. We're wild at Zoe. We're going to spend two years in the Old Testament, but I think when you find out what it is, I think you'll be happy about it. I could be wrong. Maybe you'll be really angry and leave the church. Um, but I think you'll be happy about it. I've been trying to keep it a surprise for the most part. Um, but we'll let you know in a couple weeks. Okay? Anyway, the reason why uh, I said a couple weeks is because uh, to start a big series like this, you know, I, I didn't want to start it the last Sunday of the year when people are traveling and, and doing stuff for the holidays. Um, we all want to start this book together. So we're going to spend today and next Sunday in First Peter. Um, and honestly, you know, First Peter is one of those books, too, where I'd really want to teach through it verse by verse. You know, it's a book that I feel like we should teach sooner rather than later. And it deserves a much more detailed look than what we're going to give it in these two weeks. Um, but we're going to spend the time that we do have in this book talking about some things because we're in that transition point between 2020 and 2021, you know, kind of the end of the year, beginning of the year thing. And usually we do a vision kind of sermon anyway. Um, but this year we decided that we're going to do something different. Okay, and maybe we'll never do a vision message again. Okay, 2020 kind of killed that for everybody. No, the reason why is because, um, not because talking about the vision of your organization is bad or anything. It's not, right, if it's in line with Scripture. But the reason why we're going to pivot away from it is because I think that there's something way more important, actually, 
than the vision that I have or the elders of this church have for Zoe Church. And what that thing is, what's more foundational is what is called culture, church culture. Okay, not the culture out there, the culture of society, not, not anything like that, but the culture that's in here. Okay, Zoe's culture, the culture of our church. Because as someone once said, culture eats vision for breakfast. Okay, I don't, th- I don't know if that person was a Christian. Um, but what he meant was you can set a big vision, you can have this ideal, okay, this thing that you're striving for, but what always wins out is who you actually are. So we can have a big vision. We're going to reach the lost this year. Okay, we're going to see a thousand people saved or whatever, change people's lives, change the world. The thing is, it might not happen. Maybe 2020 will happen and you can't do anything that you thought. And then even if it does happen according to your plan, if your culture is bad, even if we meet our goals, then we're going to end up sabotaging ourselves, shooting ourselves in the foot in the end anyway. We might shine bright for a little while, but ultimately fizz out like a shooting star. So, 1 Peter 1. We're going to be in 1 Peter 1 because I don't think that there's really any other book in the Bible that's better at setting culture, the culture of the church, than 1 Peter. And we're going to start right in the middle of one of his sentences, okay? Because we just don't have time to get into all of it. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 23. I'm going to read to chapter 2, verse 3. Let's get into it. This is the Word of God. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. All flesh, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, Excuse me, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you this afternoon and we acknowledge that your word is truth. That your word is the lamp unto our feet that we need, the light for our path So God, I pray that this time, as we're in your word and as we're talking about your word, I pray, God, that you'd really give us a sense that this is your word. Because so often our hearts can be hardened. We can be kind of dead to the reality that this is not just any book, but that this is your very word, your breath inspired. So God, I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to just take a step back and, and be in awe of what you've given us and pray that we would listen to what your word says with respect, with humility. And God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts today, a work in our church. God, at the end of the day, this isn't our church. Okay, It's not about what we want. It's about what you want. This is your church. So God, prepare us. I pray that you would use this time. We ask for your help. We pray that your spirit would work in our hearts. We pray that your son would be glorified. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. It was said in 2006 in an article that I read again recently. The writer, the journalist said, to say that Mars Hill is just a church is to say that Woodstock was just a concert. Now, 
I'm like, what is Woodstock? I was born in 1986. But anyway, those words were written in 2006 about what at the time was an evangelical phenomenon that was nationwide, maybe even worldwide. It was the story of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Washington. And some of you might remember that name. Do you guys remember Mars Hill at all? Okay, thanks for not raising your hand at all. I appreciate it. That's the culture of our church, not participating. No, I'm just kidding. If you don't remember, it's cool. But Marcel Church was huge back then. It's, it's rock star pastor, Mark Driscoll, was very famous. He was speaking everywhere. You saw him online. You saw him on TV. He was this edgy guy, and his church was kind of this blend, this unique blend of the Seattle grunge hipster culture on the one hand, and then this traditional, orthodox, deep kind of robust theology. It was one of the churches that was on the forefront of kind of the new Calvinism that was sweeping through evangelicalism about 15 years ago. Now, Mars Hill was very unique again, and it was also very, very successful. Okay, looking back at the numbers, it's kind of crazy. Almost 15,000 people were going to one of their dozens, uh, I think it was dozens of campuses, and, and they spread beyond Washington. They were like in other states. They were everywhere. Mars Hill was a phenomenon. It was a movement. And people's lives were changed. In fact, some people that I know really well, okay, went to Mars Hill kind of in its heyday. And they would say that Mars Hill was a huge part of their lives. Some people I know, someone I know, he, they got saved at Mars Hill. Someone I know uh, really got deeper into theology for the first time. It was like, you know, she had never studied the Bible before she had gotten to Mars Hill. And these people that I know are forever grateful for how God used that church at that time of their lives. Now, you might be wondering, why am I talking about Mars Hill as if it's dead? Like, I'm speaking about a relic of the past. Well, the reason why is, if you know the story, because it is dead. Okay, Mars Hill, it's not even like it's a shadow of itself. It doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. And it's only been 14 years since that quote, since that article. If you follow the story, you know it had a very public and very discouraging implosion for anyone who was... A Christian, right? It was sad to hear what happened with Mars Hill. Mark, Mark Driscoll, uh, always edgy, okay, always kind of walking the line. He crossed it just too many times. Okay, you might remember there was the thing where uh, he was plagiarizing in his best-selling books, or there were all the accusations from all these former pastors and elders about how he had this domineering and, and kind of authoritarian and, and really unfit kind of style of leadership. He was a bully, there was the scandal about the things that he was writing online behind an anonymous name, all of these like crude and terrible things. And not to mention that his nickname, uh, the cussing pastor, was not an exaggeration. This guy was cussing all the time. So after a long, drawn-out ordeal, he was removed as unfit for leadership. But that didn't fix the cracks that were starting to show throughout the entire church organization as a whole. Soon thereafter, after he was gone, the whole house came crashing down because the thing was Driscoll wasn't an isolated problem. Driscoll had become the cornerstone around which the entire church was built. His personality, good and bad, set the tone of the culture. His gifts drew the crowds. And I don't bring this up, okay, to hate on any one person. I do have respect for some of the things that happened at Mars Hill. 
I don't bring this up to just hate on or criticize or throw stones at this church. Self-righteousness is as bad, if not worse, than any scandal. But the reason why I bring this up is because for a time, a lot of people had admiration for this church, and yet not 20 years later, the church is completely gone. What do you think about that? What do you make about something like that? I mean, we might not have liked everything about Mark Driscoll or his church, but we had to hand it to them. They achieved their vision. They wanted to reach Seattle, one of the most notorious secular cities of America, one of the least churched, hardest places to reach. They started a mega church in Seattle. They did it. People were saved. People's lives were changed. And people did learn a lot of theology and were equipped for ministry. And yet, there's not a single member of Mars Hill that's around today because Mars Hill doesn't exist. So this is the lesson of Mars Hill for us right here and right now. Obviously, we're in a different context. We're a different church. But the lesson is one that goes to every church. Culture is important. Culture is important. The culture of your church is very important. One Christian leader who was asked to help with the Mars Hill situation when it was already too late, but he was asked to step in and help. He said it was, without a doubt, the most abusive, coercive ministry culture that he had ever been involved in. It wasn't just Mark. It was the culture of the entire church. They weren't shaped by the grace that was talked about in their official doctrine statement. You know, when Eric and I were going to plant this church, we met with these pastors, and one of the pastors, a, a godly man, he said something that I never forgot, but to be honest, I didn't quite understand at the time. He said, one of the most important things that you got to think about is the culture of your church. One of the most important things that you got to do at the beginning of planning Zoe is work on the culture of the church. And I said, sounds good. You know, I appreciate that. But the truth was, I was kind of fuzzy about what that meant. Because if you think about it, we hear the word culture all the time. You might hear someone say, right, don't be influenced by the secular culture out there. Or you might, if you're a sports fan, hear about a team that has a lot of talent, but there's something about the locker room culture that's bad. I mean, we hear about culture, and yet it's rarely, if ever, defined for us. And even though I said, sounds good, I just nodded and smiled. I didn't really know what he meant by church culture. So let's just define it before we get into it. At its simplest level, culture, in general, is what you actually do and why you actually do it. Okay? As an organization or a group or a team. Okay, let me say it again. Culture is what we actually do and why we actually do it. And the reason why I inserted actually in there twice is because culture isn't the ideal, okay? It's not about what we wrote down on our website, what we theoretically think is good. It's about what's real, what this place is actually like, what this people is actually like, who we are. And you know that there's a difference I mean, what church says our stated goal is to be unwelcoming and unfriendly to newcomers? And yet you've been to churches where people are unfriendly. Maybe you thought that about our church. What person, what pastor goes up there and says, you know, we're really trying to be legalistic. Okay, we're really into that here. It's a value for us. No one says that. And yet I think some of you guys have been to churches that are legalistic. 
Mars Hill said it's all about Jesus, and yet in reality, it had become all about Mark Driscoll. So you know that there's a difference between what we say and what's reality. So we could say we welcome everyone again. But if a newcomer shows up and no one says hi, then we're not a welcoming church. That's just the culture. That's just the fact. So what kind of culture should we have? Okay, before we worry about vision and all the stuff that we're going to do, what culture should we have as a church? If we're going to reach the world, what kind of church are we going to bring them into, Lord willing? I mean, what do you think? I'll just let your imagination run wild. In your mind, what would the perfect church be? Think about it. Did I hear Zoe <laughs> anywhere? I think I have five people said it. No, I'm just, I knew no one was going to say it. I wouldn't even say it. Okay, to be honest, I know that this church is not perfect. When I was dreaming of a church plant, you know, that I would be a pastor of, it wasn't exactly this. I'll just say that. Because the truth is, even as one of the pastors who started Zoe, Zoe isn't exactly what I wanted it to be. And that's good. Because I've learned over time that that's really the wrong question to be asking. What do I want the church to be? What is my idea? Really, the question we should be asking is, what does God want his church to be? And that's the shift, I think, that we want to make here at Zoe intentionally. That we would stop thinking about ourselves first. And this is hard for me, okay? One of the reasons why people plant churches is so that they could start fresh, you know, you know create a church, whatever. But that's not really what it's about. It's about being faithful to what God wants for his church. So we turn to the word of God. And that's the big idea for today. It's kind of a meta thing. But the way Zoe can have the kind of church culture God wants is if we look to the word. And part of what goes into Zoe's culture is that we want to be a church that constantly goes to the word. So we're going to look at this text in three parts. We're going to look at how the word affects our culture in three ways. We're going to see that the word, it centers our identity, okay? It crafts our conduct, and it ultimately creates our character. So let's get into it. First, the word centers our identity. It centers our identity. We need to know who we are, okay? Verse 23, since you have been born again, Peter writes, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Okay, real quick, what Peter is saying here means that there wouldn't even be the church to talk about, okay, much less our church without the word of God. Okay, the, the church is created by the word. Um, but let's take a step back for a second because we need to get situated. We're just dropping right in the middle of Peter's thoughts here. Verse 23 isn't even the beginning of a sentence. Okay, First Peter is an interesting book. Okay, because First Peter is, is kind of a basic book in a lot of ways. Peter is writing this general epistle. He talks about a lot of different topics. And yet what you realize as you read the book, when you study the context, is that he's writing to a church that's under attack directly. Okay, some churches, they're worried about persecution. Some churches are kind of coming out of persecution or they're feeling the first waves of it. But the church that Peter is writing is directly being persecuted right now. So he's not shooting the breeze with them. Okay, this isn't like front porch sitting around, you know, uh, banter or anything like that. He's giving them essentials. He's telling them what they need in this time of crisis. 
And part of what he reminds them at the very beginning in chapter 1 is who they are. They need to know who they are. He's recentering their identity. Now, you might be wondering what that means, right? Centering identity, recentering identity. Did you just say that because it starts with a C and everything else in the points do? Maybe. But the thing is, okay, identity is kind of this slippery concept. Because if you think about it, there are a lot of different ways to define who you are. Okay, think about how old you are. That puts you in a certain bracket. Think about where you're from, your ethnicity. That puts you in a certain group. Think about the relationships that you have. Okay, if you get married, all of a sudden now you are a husband or you are a wife. Or if you have a kid, now you're a parent. And that's a huge part of your identity and how you see yourself. You are so many things and they are all true things. So how are you supposed to think of yourself first and foremost? Is there a primary thing? What does the Bible say? You know, a few years ago, um, I went to the Texas Museum of History or whatever it's called, the Bullock Museum in Austin. You guys been there? Uh, it's like the museum to go learn about this great state, right? And I just moved uh, to Texas from a lesser state, you could say, um, as all Texans would say. And I wanted to learn about stuff, right? They said, remember the Alamo? And I said, I can't even remember it. I don't even know about it. What can I remember? So I was like, I got to go to this museum. And at this museum, there was this movie um, about the Alamo. It was like a short film. You go into a room. It might have been about more than the Alamo, but I remember the Alamo part. If you know what I'm talking, if you know what it is, just remind me. Okay, it's been a while. You can tell me after. Um, but I was watching the movie, and if you've seen it, you know this scene. Um, Davy Crockett and all these famous Texans, right, are getting ready for their famous last stand, right? They don't even know for sure. I mean, they, they know that the odds are stacked against them. Um, and there's this Mexican guy. And he said he was Mexican. Okay, I'm not just like stereotyping him. Um, but he said, and this is a big deal because Texas was like owned by Mexico at this point. He said, even though my face is Mexican, he said, my blood. And then he was like, my blood is Texan. And I was like, whoa, this is, this is crazy, man. I, where did I move to? That's good. That's good. See, the thing is, these guys were from all over the place. Davy Crockett wasn't born in Texas. Did you know that? He's from like Tennessee or something. But all of these guys at the Alamo, some young, some old, from all over the place, on that fateful day, by choice and by sacrifice, became Texan primarily. That's what their life was about on that day. That was the thing that tied them together. That was their primary identity at the Alamo in that moment. According to Scripture, okay, if you are a Christian, you might be from this place or that place. You might be young or old, and it doesn't mean that you aren't young or you aren't old. But if you are a Christian, it means that you have a new primary identity by choice and by sacrifice. Not necessarily your choice or your sacrifice, but by choice and by sacrifice. You are a new creation in Christ See, in the language of this text, it's all-encompassing. Okay, if you look at verse 23, it says, since you have been born again. Okay, it's not just one aspect. You don't, you don't just get, like, you don't just, like, take off your arm and then you, you put on a new Christian arm or something like that. Your entire being is reborn. You become new. Who you are fundamentally has been changed. The old you is dead. The new you is alive forever. So what does this have to do with church? 
okay, why are we going here when we're talking about church culture? Well, if you think about it, a lot of times in church, is it the oneness of who we are in Christ that we have had this crazy experience of new birth? Is it that that actually brings us together, practically speaking? See, normally, and I'm not trying to call out anyone in particular, maybe I call out myself, but practically speaking, a lot of times we settle for lesser things. It's just easier. It makes practical sense. We look for a church where people are the same age as us, right, so that we can have friends. It just makes sense, right? Why wouldn't you do that? There are a lot of churches I'm trying to narrow down. You know, we look for a place, a church where there are people with kids the same age as my kids so they can have friends, or I look for a church where people, you know, look like me because it's more comfortable or where they have the same life experience so that we can connect over something. Or, you know, we look for a church where people have the same level of education so we can kind of talk about the scripture at the same level or we enjoy the same kind of humor so that we could joke around outside in the parking lot, whatever it is, you know, people you just click with. And this is common sense and this is common practice. And again, there's nothing wrong with this. It's not sinful to have preferences But the thing is, there is something wrong if that's all we focus on. And sometimes that is all we focus on, right? There is something wrong if we ignore the deeper reality of what makes us a church in the first place. We're not just a club. Okay, we're not just like an ethnic enclave. We're not just a place to make business connections. We're not a place to find friends, even though you could find all those things maybe in church. Church is a theological reality. See, when we look at Scripture, we see that what binds Christians together is primarily not what's on the surface at all. It's spiritual. Paul talked about this in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. You know what I'm talking about? There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, obviously, there were cultural differences between Jews and Greeks. It was super hard. They ate uh, what they ate, what they wore, how they talked, what they were into. All of those things were hard, absolutely. It made church interesting. Sometimes it made church spicy, to say the least. And so the apostles kept on recentering the churches. Read the epistles of Paul, read Peter's letters, John's. The apostles kept recentering the churches that were drifting into these sub-identities to the ultimate theological reality that what they had in common was the most important thing. Life in Christ. And you might all know this, and I mean, you guys are Christian. I'm not trying to like tell you something that you already know. If you don't know it, then it's important that you know it. But for those of you who do know it, the reason why I bring it up, I bring it up and I hammer it so much is because in small church, this is very hard. This is very hard. There's a smaller pool of friends to click with. If you're single, there's not exactly like a big pool of choices for people to get married to. Let's just be honest. And even though our church is growing, okay, maybe that'll help. But even though our church is growing, we don't want to put our hope in that. I want to encourage us, let's not hope in more people so that we can find more people who are like us in other ways. Even though it's hard, I think we have an opportunity Because maybe there aren't people exactly like me here, but that's okay because there are people who are exactly like me in the most important way. They have the same Lord, the same faith. They're born into the same spiritual family. This is what Peter is getting at. 
since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. See, the reason why it's the most important thing is because it's the thing that will last. Do you see that? The grass is nice for a season, the flowers are beautiful for a time, but God's word remains, and the life that God's word, that God's word gives remains. I mean, it's crazy to think about what we actually believe. Think about this, okay? Maybe you'll be a young adult for five more years, ten more years. Maybe you'll try to convince the kids that you're still a fellow kid 30 years from now. I don't know what you're into. But a million years from now, if you're a Christian, you're still going to be a Christian. We could meet up in a million years in the new heavens and new earth. I don't know if you'd want to. There's a lot of other people you can meet up with, but we could. That's a pretty crazy thing to think about. Thinking about eternity, see, it puts things into perspective. It keeps us from putting too much stock in the things that are temporary. Fads come and go. The building we meet in might get sold off, you know? There might be times when God really blesses us us with success, humanly speaking, and at times when he doesn't. But overall, the important thing is that the word of the Lord remains forever. And that's why we're trying to commit ourselves to the simple ministry of the word here at Zoe. Right? Just going to the Word, making sure that the Bible is kind of our common denominator. You know, letting God handle the results because what's most important isn't what we can see. It's really what we can't, at least not what's on the surface. It's the spiritual reality of who we are. We are the people of the Word, the people of the Gospel. And if you look at verse 25, the, the second half Peter says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So again, you know, I love to get into some of the nitty gritty here. If we ever do first Peter, we will. But Peter quotes from Isaiah 40, speaking of the word of God in general. But here at the end of verse 25, Peter is talking specifically about the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the message of who Jesus is and what he has done. Because sometimes you got people who are really into like obscure things in the Bible, right? It's like end times church or something like that. But the Bible actually has a main message, okay? There's a main storyline that runs throughout the Bible, and it's the gospel. It's the story of God's salvation in Jesus Christ for his glory. And it's in believing this message that we are saved, that though we are sinners before a holy God, and though perfect justice would say that we deserve death and condemnation, Jesus Christ came to live the life we could never live, to die the death that we deserve, and to be our substitutionary atonement. I mean, really, when you think about the gospel message, all the big issues and the big questions of life are in it. So we have a lot in common. We acknowledge God's holiness. We admit our own sinfulness. We trust in Jesus. We have the same views about the metaphysical God. We have the same views about human nature. Now, I have a friend who was part of a church um, and it's a good church, okay? It, it, it is still going. Um, but he was part of a church, and he was in seminary. And they were really trying to be a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church. Okay, that was kind of their thing. It was in their vision. It was on their website. And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? That's cool. Okay, I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, it can be a great thing, showing the world that's been divided since the Tower of Babel, that in Christ, we can be one. We can cross all of these boundaries. But the thing is, and if you've been part of a church that's had a vision like that, the thing is, it's a lot easier to put it on the website 
than to make it happen in reality. And uh, it was hard. I mean, because people have different cultural preferences. People like eating different food after church. People like watching different TV. It was difficult. And he felt like over time, they kind of got into this thing where they were trying to pursue diversity, but it was so hard that more and more of like their effort and their mindset was going to this. And they had a good reason, ultimately, in the beginning. But they kind of lost sight of it. And now, you know, 10, 15 years later, they look at their church, and the large majority of the church is all one ethnicity and young families. And they're kind of like, okay, we kind of didn't realize the vision yet. Now, the thing is, at Zoe, we kind of, you know, we kind of done it a little bit, you know. I, I told them, I was like, this is how you do it. Just do it just like me. No, I didn't tell them. It, it was by accident because we never tried explicitly to be anything. We're just like, oh, we're just going to be a church. Uh, we never tried to be an Asian church. A lot of people tell me that. They're like, oh, man, it's crazy. I'm going to an Asian church now. And I'm like, I can see why you say that. But we're not trying to be. Are there challenges of being multi-ethnic and multi-generational? Of course there are. Just like Jew and Gentile had a lot of difficulties in the first century. But the thing is, I think the answer isn't to just have a vision of being a certain way, but it's actually to go back to the source of what actually brings us together in the first place. It's okay. I mean, honestly, I'm okay whoever God brings. Okay, that's what someone told me, one of these pastors that we met with in the beginning. He said, just be, God will bring who he wants to bring. Don't worry about your vision for who to re- like how to reach these people or those people. So we really try to keep that. We'll talk about that next week. But the thing is, if we want to be God's church, we go back to the gospel and the word. Because what binds us together is far stronger than any difference between us. Second point. So we get re-centered. We get centered and re-centered by the word on who we actually are. I think that this is the only way to kind of get our church off on the right foot. We have to keep being reminded of that. But secondly, the word also crafts our conduct. It crafts our conduct. And this is important because culture is what you actually do. Okay, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Peter writes, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Stop there. The reason why, one of the reasons why I brought up Mars Hill in the beginning is because the doctrine was actually pretty good, okay? I didn't agree with everything. There were some actually some pretty big things I didn't agree with. But overall, it was known for being a church that was trying to get people into certain biblical, reformed, orthodox doctrines. And there was a point in my life where I truly believed that if the doctrine was good and that was emphasized, then that was enough. I think some people actually told me that. Okay, just focus on the theology and everything else will be solved. But that's not necessarily true. Because knowledge can just puff up people's heads. It can just be something that you think about and that you understand. It can be like an opinion. But at the end of the day, the Bible isn't just to inform your opinions. It's to inform your life. Now, let's back up a little bit. Notice the first word of verse 1. You see what it is? It's the word, so. Hopefully in your Bible it says that. It's a word that connects the exhortation of verse 1 to the verses that came before. And when you read letters like this one in the New Testament, you see that there are connecting words all over the place. Okay, it's not like the Bible is given to us in bullet point form. Okay, maybe some of the Proverbs are kind of like that, but in the New Testament, it's not like that. See, everything in the Bible is connected. There's a flow. There are truth statements that lead into life statements and back and forth and back and forth. 
See, the Bible is a book of indicatives and imperatives. Have we talked about that before? Yes? Maybe not. Okay, someone actually said no. Okay, the Bible is a book of indicatives and imperatives. These are very important words to know. And I know, like, grammar, like, ew, you know, I don't want to think about that. I majored in English in college, and I don't even want to talk about it. So I can only imagine what you guys are thinking right now. Like, can we get James back up here? But if you want to study the Bible, there are some grammatical terms you got to know. If you want to take the Bible for what God originally intended it to mean. Indicative and imperative. Those words, you got to know. Okay, you got to know them. Indicatives, they're truth statements. Okay, they're truth statements. Imperatives are commands. Indicatives are statements like, Jesus died for your sins. uh, Did I say that right? Indicatives, Jesus died for your sins. Imperatives are commands like, repent and believe. And in the Bible, imperatives and indicatives, they go together. The Bible is just just as concerned about what you believe as how you live in light of what you believe. Let me give you an example of how it works. I was reading this commentary this week, and the guy was talking about his daughter. And he was saying that in high school, his daughter was really good at tennis. She wasn't going to go pro or anything, um, but she was good. She was one of the best in the area. And he said the thing about her was she wasn't that tall and she wasn't that athletic. So there was a limit on her talent, right? But he said the reason she was good is because she had really good conditioning and really good mental toughness. So she would outlast her opponents. Like, they would start off on fire, but she would wear them down. And by the third set, I don't really, that's set, right? I'm not into tennis, but you know what I mean. Uh, at the end of the, the match, she would be dominating because she had her energy left. And he said they would talk before every match, and he would say, hey, you know, if, if they start off really good, don't worry about it. Remember your strength, right? You have better conditioning. You're in better shape. Just persevere. And she carried this mindset with her to victory again and again and again. And that's how it generally works. Okay, you have these truth ideas. You have these beliefs, and they inform your actions. They change the way that you live. So, for example, in church, because God is holy, we learn about that in the Bible, God is holy and perfect and righteous. We shouldn't mess around when we pray in church. Okay, that's just one example. Because God looks at the heart, not as man sees, who only looks at the outward appearance, we should be careful about things that we do just to be seen by others. Truth drives behavior most of the time. But the thing is, even if we agree on the same truth, sometimes it's not clear on what to do with them. Sometimes we look at the same truths in the Bible and we draw different implications and different applications and we disagree with other people in the church. And this can lead to problems. For example, dressing up for church service. Okay, dressing up for church. You know, it's funny. One of the the things that always gets brought up in church culture discussions is dress code. How dressed up should I be at church? Right? How fancy should I show up? You know, or how casual? Should the men wear suits and the women Sunday dresses? Or if not everybody, should the pastor wear suits? Not the Sunday dresses, but the suits. How about just a shirt and tie? How about just a shirt? How about pants? I remember one church, that was the line, right? Like, don't wear shorts. You can wear any pants. Okay, you can wear capris even. Don't wear shorts. The church that we're from uh, was fairly casual. Uh, If you were a pastor, you were expected to wear like a collared shirt and pants, like nicer pants, not your worst pants. Um, But you didn't have to get any more formal than that. So one day I remember uh, years ago, this one guy from our seminary, and if, if you know Master Seminary, we have to get dressed up for school. 
So you've got to wear a tie, got to wear a dress shirt and everything. And he was a guy who was really formal. He would wear like a full suit and you know, polished shoes and everything for his church. But he had heard that Lighthouse was really casual and he wanted to visit one day. So he showed up to church and he was wearing like this old t-shirt with like these holes. It was like, I was like, did you just roll out of, he's wearing these gym shorts, like these basketball shorts. And he was wearing these sandals. Okay, it looked like I, I, I thought he was going to go to the gym or something. And being a pastor, he sat in the very front row. So after church, I was like, hey, uh, what's up, man? Like, good to see you. What's, up? Like, what's going on here, dude? And he was like, you said it was casual, right? Like, to me, this is casual. So he showed up dressed like kind of a homeless guy. What do you think? What do you think? I mean, even about this issue, because this issue is just an example of the larger idea of how the church should really craft the conduct. I mean, the Bible should really craft the conduct of the church. What do you think the Bible says about dressing up for church? You could say it says wear your best robe, don't braid your hair, or something like that. But it doesn't really say what kind of soup brands are uh, acceptable. It doesn't say anything about Sunday best. Maybe in the Old Testament, you see people bringing their very best to God, especially when it came to worship. So here's, a, here's, a, here's one way to think about it. Dressing up for church is actually rooted in an indicative, okay, at best, right? Because people are supposed to bring their best. If you dress up every day of the week for work, for man, then shouldn't you dress up at least as good for God on Sunday? That's one way to think about it. But at the same time, the case against getting all dressed up is also rooted in an indicative, Because the truth is, God cares way more about the state of your heart than he does about the state of your dress. In fact, if you read the Gospels, it seems pretty clear that God would rather you not dress up if it is just about being seen or if it is legalistic. And he doesn't approve of those who dress up just because it makes them feel like somehow they are more righteous before him. So what's the answer? It's actually hinted in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Sincere love from a pure heart. It's the heart. It's the heart. If you earnestly desire to honor God with your best outfit, then you should wear your best outfit. Go for it. But your best might not be a suit. In fact, your best might be what's normal for you. So you don't attract attention to yourself. You just want to blend in with the crowd. It can honestly go either way. And that's why sometimes I wear a suit and sometimes I don't. Okay, I wear a suit on Easter and I'm just wishy-washy like that because I can see both And sometimes I feel like it just depends on the heart. Not sometimes, but I feel like it just depends on the heart. So that being said, back to verse 1. There are all these different things in church where there are these indicatives and people take them and they run with them and it leads to conflict. But the Bible doesn't just give us a bunch of indicatives to run with however we please. The Bible also gives us commands. It actively crafts our conduct too. Peter writes, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. The term put away, okay, right here was used for taking off dirty garments. Every day, hopefully, you take off your dirty clothes and you change into something clean. That's the idea. These behaviors are soiled clothes you need to change out of. And Peter doesn't go to the extreme sins here. He doesn't talk about the worst vices of Roman society or anything like that. He's talking about things that ruin the community of the church. Malice, ill will toward others in a general sense. You can do the right thing with the wrong motive and it's still wrong. 
hypocrisy and inconsistency between what you say you're about and what you do. Deceit, lying, living a double life, envy, wanting what others have, desiring gifts that others possess, wanting positions of leadership that some people have, coveting the blessings God has given others, slander, speaking ill of someone with the intent of ruining a reputation. See, the thing is, the Bible gives us principles by which we should live. What we see here is that the word actively takes a role in crafting our behavior. And remember that behavior is what you actually do. And what is culture? What you actually do and why you do it. Now let's think a little bit more practically. Almost every toxic church culture, right, that you've ever witnessed or been a part of, you know that behind that culture there's been a Bible verse, right? Have you ever been to a legalistic church? Again, I've used this example. But at a legalistic church, certain behaviors are frowned upon, right? Like, oh, you uh, watch that movie, uh, and people will meet you with that statement with judgment, or they might share prayer requests about you, like gossip talking bad about you. They might even invite you to a one-on-one rebuking smackdown, right, where it's like, we need to talk. And you show up, and you're like, uh, how are you doing? And they're like, we really got to talk about how unrighteous you are. Now, look, maybe you shouldn't have watched that movie. Maybe you do need a rebuke, but I'm talking about a legalistic church where the culture is oppressive. What is motivating that? Oftentimes, if you dig down deep beneath that, it's a biblical indicative. They'll go to First Peter 1 and they'll say, what does it say right here? Verse 16, you shall be holy for I am holy. And I look at you and you don't look holy. The Bible says that. But the thing is, when we veer into legalism, when we start acting in a judgmental way, we're actually being unholy and unbiblical ourselves. We're using the Bible as justification to live out of line with the Bible. Because the Bible has both indicatives and imperatives to guide us. There's statements about God's desire for righteousness and commands not to be self-righteously judgmental. We need both. We need both. That's why I think sometimes we just got to chill about certain things because God hates hypocrisy. I think we can help people with the things that they're struggling with, but we should never go up to people and talk as if we have it all down pat because I don't know anyone who does. You can point people to the word. You can be firm. You can take a stand. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. We need both. The goal is to be biblical. And when we look at what the entire Bible says, indicative, imperative, Genesis to Revelation, then God will tell us how to live. Third point. The word centers our identity. It crafts our conduct. And lastly, the word creates our character. This is a shorter point. The word creates our character. Character, you could say, it's almost like the culture of an individual. Okay, character is the sum of all your traits. It's who you are, and when you act, how you act is in line with your character. Okay, and character is something that isn't easily changed. It's not easily affected. As a pastor, I could talk forever about how I want you to act, but that's not the direction God takes us. Verse 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. When God first started leading us to plant this church, 
just giving us the desire and opportunity. Again, Eric and I, uh, we sat down and we had a to-do list, okay? There were only two items on it in the beginning. One is make sure that James comes with us no matter what, okay? We needed him and we said, uh, if we, he doesn't come, then we might scrap the whole thing. Second, meet up with as many pastors as we could, godly men that we respected who were in our shoes before, who had planted churches and get some godly wisdom from them. And there was one pastor that we met with who's still pastoring today, and he's really a favorite of our seminary. Um, in fact, Dr. Matoya, our old preaching professor, would always tell people to go talk to this pastor, okay, because he had an interesting and unique perspective. So guys would go meet with this pastor, and they would say, so what was your strategy, you know, like when you started? Did you, did you pass out flyers uh, to everyone in the neighborhood? And he'd be like, you know, that would have been a really good idea, but honestly, I didn't think about it. And they'd be like, oh, so email? He's like, no, we didn't do anything like that either. That also would have been a good idea. So they said, what did you do? He said, well, we just had like this room that we rented and we just preached the word and prayed. So they said, okay, so basically you just had this random building and you put a sign up and hope that people would come. And he'd be like, about, we didn't have a sign either. Like, that really would have been a good idea because no one could find our building, but we had nothing. I don't think they had a sign for like the first eight years of their church or something. Now, why do you think that this pastor was the one that they told all of us to go talk to? What do you think? Look at verse 2 again. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Okay, the imagery is fairly straightforward. Newborn babies crave milk. They want it. They need it. And they will cry and they will cry and they will let you know. Because some of you guys have had newborns in the past couple of years. You know. And yet you also know parents that while it might be exhausting, it might be maddening to hear this crying in the middle of the night, when your baby doesn't cry, that's really scary. You actually want them to be crying because if your baby doesn't want milk, doesn't take milk, then something is wrong with the baby's body. And you need to figure it out fast because newborns, they need nourishment to grow and even more so to live. This is the imagery, like newborns long for the pure spiritual milk. And if you do a quick study in Greek, you see that the word for spiritual is derived from the word logos, which means word. So what Peter is getting at here is that the spiritual milk is the milk of the word, of the Bible. He's saying that we as Christians need milk like babies need milk, except for ours is spiritual. So the question is, do you, you read the Bible? Do you read the Bible? That's a big thing for us here, that you have a regular intake. This is why we preach expository sermons from the Bible every week. We need that. Because just like babies were designed to, by God to grow by their mother's milk and to who they are created to be, we as humans are designed by God, we as Christians, excuse me, are designed by God to grow by the word of God into who we are saved to be. See, the thing is, it's the Word that creates our character. It's the Word that actually creates the culture that God wants. He does it one person at a time, one devotional study at a time, one sermon at a time, one quiet time at a time. Just keep drinking deeply of the Word of God, and you will become who you need to become. The word is everything that we need. And so at Zoe, it's really simple. And hopefully you've been able to see this, but I wanted to codify it a little bit this Sunday. 
It's that, you know, we might not have all these different things. In fact, sometimes church isn't going to look exactly like we want it to look. I don't even know exactly what our vision should be this year. There are so many things in flux, right? We might leave this building. We can stay here indefinitely, so you don't have to worry about, like, being homeless. But we're looking for someplace else. We'd like to meet in the morning. Like, all these things, but they're secondary. They're secondary. Because what we want to be here is simply just the ministry of the word, and we will become who God wants us to be. That's what we try to do. That's what we need to do. And that's really it. We'll close here. We'll close here. Why do you think our seminary wanted us to interview that one pastor? Never answered that question. But why do you think that we were sent to the guy without a plan? Right? No flyers, no email, no sign even. Well, let me answer this question with a story from church history. So you can look back in church history, and from a certain point of view, you could say that Martin Luther was the spark right, that ignited the fire that was the Protestant Reformation. It changed history. Our church wouldn't be here without Martin Luther. But if you asked Martin Luther, he'd say it had nothing to do with him. It's kind of weird. But the truth is, he was asked, and this is what he said. He said, what is Luther? What is Luther? The teaching isn't mine. Nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I poor stinking bag of maggots that I am. He kind of had a way with words. How did I come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, whoever Amsdorf is, the, Lord, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing, the word did everything. I simply taught, I preached, I wrote God's word, I did nothing, the word did everything. And that's why we were sent to that pastor, because here was an example of a guy who, no offense to him, he didn't really do anything except for teach and preach and write down God's word. And the church is still around. It's thriving. It's healthy. It even has a sign now. There's nothing wrong with signs. They have their own building. But for them, it was clear from the get-go that it's not about all of this human stuff. It's about the Word doing everything. So again, the question we should be asking when it comes to church culture isn't, what would I like Zoe to be like? That's not the question that I should ask either as the pastor. The question should be, what does God want? What does God want Zoe to be like, to look like? And if we want to answer that question, there's only one place to go, the Word of God. It tells us who God saved us to be. It tells us how God wants us to act. And it continually works on us and helps us and nourishes us. And ultimately, it shapes us. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this time, God, that we could come before your word. And God, we desire to be a church that pleases you, a church that is faithful to you, a church that honors you. So God, I pray that we would not lose sight of these things, that we would not be a church that drifts away from what the Bible says is our main identity. 
that we would not be a church that assumes the gospel. I pray also that we wouldn't be a church that disobeys what your word says, that we would carefully seek to align our character and our conduct with what the Bible says. That's really it, God. It's simple. And yet it's not easy for us. So God, I pray that you would remind us over and over again that you would bring us deeper into a better and fuller understanding of what your word says. I pray that you would help us to live it out and not just hear it. And I pray, Father, that you would establish Zoe for however long we exist on the solid rock of your word. We ask that your spirit would help us. We ask that your son, Lord, would be first and foremost. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.